You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis, a faith community that welcomes, affirms, and protects the light in each human heart, listens deeply to where love is calling us next, and with humility, courage, and compassion, works to create a more just world. To learn more, visit us at firstuniversalistchurch.org. like this. Help me teach it if you know it. particularly to those who are not yet fully caffeinated. Um, it meets you right where you are, and it, uh, it, and it uh, lifts you up a little bit. Um, uh, the words don't, the, but, but it, does add, it does add some fullness to the actual text. The text, as it's written, is, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is no caravan of despair. Though you've broken your vows a thousand times, come, yet again, come. Though you've broken your vows a thousand times, though you've broken your vows a thousand times, though you've broken your vows a thousand times, though you've broken your
Thank you. Good morning. Our caffeination level is starting to rise. Thank you. There we go. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. My name is Reverend Arif Mamdani, and I am one of the ministers here, and it is a joy to be together with you this morning. I've got just a couple announcements as we are settling into our time together this morning. Uh, the first is that there is a uh, BIPOC dinner church coming up on January 24th, a gathering for folks who are black, indigenous, people of color, and we would love to invite people to help us make dinner. So if you're interested in that, get in touch with me. There is a... Uh, whoa, come my goodness, I have many things that I need to tell you. Let me look at my list here. So the next thing I want to let you know is that the Daytime Connections program on Thursday is canceled. Uh, I also want to let you know that next Sunday, uh, uh, January, we're in January now, January 22nd, will kick off a series of Justice Sundays. So these are Sundays where uh, teams of um, faithful action uh, groups in the congregation will be leading the service. This is an opportunity to hear from folks in the congregation about why their Unitarian Universalist faith calls them to take action in the world on particular justice issues. It'll be kicking off next Sunday, and we will have one of these every month through April. You can find more information about that online, but I really encourage you to come and be part of this expression of what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. Last but certainly not least, I want to thank uh, Rita Franchette for the flowers this morning. And finally, as we are getting settled, I want to invite you to look around, remembering our story from last week, our story in which sadness was right beside us in the pews, where we were invited to make a little more room for sadness. I want to invite you to look around and see if there might be sadness or happiness or anger or other emotions that are sitting near you, maybe even inside of yourself. And if you notice them, see if you can make a little bit more room for those emotions, those feelings in yourself and in those around you, knowing that we are bringing all of these things and more into the sanctuary knowing that here at First Universalist, we try to make room for all of who we are, committing ourselves to giving, receiving, and growing in community, that we might learn together to create the beloved community here and now, today, if only for these few moments of worship together. And so, congregation, as you settle your body, as we settle our bodies together, I invite you to breathe a little bit more deeply to open the heart space, to notice what it is that you're sitting on and the pull of gravity, to know that everything that we are, that everything that we touch is made of and from the earth, that nothing is separate, that we are working imperfectly as it may be, to remember and to live from our deep interconnectedness.
And I'd like to invite you into worship this morning with a story. So this is a story about a friend of mine, African-American musician, young man, who when he was younger, in his 20s, lived in a house somewhere here in Minneapolis with a great many other 20-something artists and organizers, and many of you know the kind of house that I am talking about. You can, you can imagine it. We have, we have those stories in common. So this house, great big house, great big yard, had a garden in it that this particular group of young people was tending. And it had a compost pile, also generations old. One lovingly tended, the other not. And you know which was which. They were stewarding the land. They were stewarding that garden, even as the compost pile was being neglected. Stewarding the land, knowing that it was not theirs for keeps, but that it was at best temporary stewardship after generations of genocide, of theft, of discrimination, of redlining, of all of the things that this land has carried from those who have come before. And so they tended, they tended that garden, and they composted. The thing with compost is that it too needs tending. We know what happens if we don't tend to a compost pile. Most of us have walked past one. Some of us might even have an untended compost pile in the back corner of our yards. If we don't tend to what needs metabolizing and transforming, it festers and stinks. And so one day my friend took a wheelbarrow. He went to the pile. He spent hours under the hot sun, sifting and turning and harvesting up to his elbows in this muck. And he came back at the end of the day with a wheelbarrow that was piled high with good compost. The others exclaimed they wanted some of that for themselves. He said no. There is plenty more over there. You just got to go do the work. I am not sifting the muck for you. Come, let us worship together. <laughs> and will you join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice? Please. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. I think we should sing together, right? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. The hymn is, "'Tis a gift to be simple, "'tis a gift to be free, Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. 
to turn, to turn will be our delight. Let's sing together. Will you rise? 16, 16, thanks for asking, 1, 6. I invite us now to continue to settle in to our bodies, to this time and place, to center ourselves with a bit of quiet as we join in a time of meditation and prayer. The black liberation theologian James Cone wrote, we come to church on Sunday mornings to find out where we are in relation to the actualization of our dream. We come to church on Sunday mornings to find out where we are in relation to the actualization of our dream. In this place of pause, in this community of bruised and beautiful bodies, in the silence and singing and stories we remember. We remember the dream, the dream of a world, the dream of ways of being together that we may not have known yet. A world, a community, a life where each and all of us are held as whole and holy and worthy. We begin with thanks, with gratitude for the internal spark, the unshakable knowing, the still small voice that whispers and sometimes yells inside of us, you are worthy 
You are worthy. You are worthy. For the voices that come from outside of us, from nature and neighbors, strangers and friends, voices that arrive in song and stanza and chorus, voices that echo from the streets saying, you matter, you are worthy, we can be better together. We lift up our thanks for communities of refuge and resistance, for the ancestors who lived and loved that we might live now, for the holders of hope, the binders of wounds, for the dreamers who continue to imagine and to remember another way. We notice and name the distance between our dreams and the reality we inhabit, the distance that exists within us, among us, beyond us. We notice and name that the harm we cause is real, with or without intent. The grief and pain we wrestle with is real. And somehow still we come together to give thanks anyway. To give thanks for the legions of ancestors, past and present, who dare to say no, enough is enough for the voices inside and outside that call us to a higher cause of shared humanity and hope, for those who hold space at 38th and Chicago at George Floyd Square. We give thanks for moments of beauty and connection. We give thanks for the persistence and presence of black joy and black life, and we say today and every day that black lives matter. We give thanks for the resting and growing spaces of communities of care, of friendship, of art. We know that building a new way will not be conflict-free or easy, but what else can we do? What else can we do but open our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our ears to hear that still small voice inside, that echoing voice in the streets that says we must build something more. Let us know comfort, clarity, and hope here. And let us circle each other near and far with kindness and care. Today, our hearts reach out to all those who are living with pain or illness and to those who surround them with tender care. for those at risk of deportation, for those who are most marginalized in our community. I invite us now to bring our own names and prayers to this space. Together we pray that the grip of addiction might be loosened, that the weight of oppression might be lightened, that grief might be shared, that joy might break through, and that love might make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so. Amen. Sweet.
each week when we gather for worship. We make time for the spiritual practice of generosity as we give and receive our offering. This week's offering goes to support the work of the Sanctuary and Resistance team here at First Universalist. It also helps in the Sanctuary and Resistance team's ongoing commitment to one of our interfaith community partners, ICOM, that contributes to its low barrier mutual aid fund for immigrants living in our community. This is just some of the work that your contributions help to support, and so we encourage you to be as generous as you're able. I invite the ushers to please come forward as we receive this morning's offering. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle around to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now, it is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle around to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now, it is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. It is time now. It is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In Turning, we shall learn to lead in love. A reading from the common creation myth of the Theravada tradition from around the third century BCE, a translation of the Aganya Sutta. 
According to a widely known creation myth, the first humans in the present period of abiding had a lifespan of 80,000 years. Free from the marks of gender, they were able to fly and were illuminated by their own light. There was no need for a sun or a moon. They also did not require food. Still, the surface of the earth was covered by a white, frothy, rice-like substance. One day, one of the beings descended to earth and dipped the tip of its finger into the substance and then touched it to its tongue. And the taste was sweet. Soon, everyone was eating the white substance, which would naturally replenish itself. But the introduction of this food into their bodies weighed them down and caused them to lose their natural luster. And the sun and the moon appeared to illumine the sky. The added weight of their bodies soon made it impossible for them to fly. And as the changes of their bodies varied between each other, the, con the concept of difference arose. The concepts of beautiful and ugly were born. And the people became suspicious of one another. Now the body of the creatures had become finely evolved to accommodate their consumption. They began to see each other as male or female. Passion and desire were aroused in them. One couple even learned to engage in sexual intercourse. The others were scandalized and pelted them with mud. The couples began to build houses to hide their shameful activities. The comfort of a house bred laziness. They left less often. And they stored piles of rice in their homes. As a result, the rice developed husks and required more and more time to grow, to protect itself. Isolated and suspicious, the people learned to practice greed. Their greed evolved into theft, requiring the election of a king who would enforce a system of laws. And this, the common myth goes, is how human society began.
When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Thank you, Franca. When I was four years old, late at night before bed, my mother and I would recount stories we'd learned from church. We were new Christians together. She sometimes would read to me from the King James Version of the Bible, which surely launched my love affair with the English language. In the beginning, God created the sky and the earth, the Hebrew story tells. And at first, the earth was completely empty. There was nothing on the earth. Then God said, let there be light, and light began to shine. He saw the light and knew that it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening, and there was morning. This was the first day. God said, let there be a space to separate the water. Some of the water was above the space, and some was below the space, and he named the space above sky. That was the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered together so the dry land will appear. And it happened. Let the grass grow and plants and fruit trees and plants grow on the earth. And it happened. This was the third day. God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the days from the nights. And it happened. Let water and the sky be filled with many living things, and it happened. Let the earth produce many kinds of living things. Let there be large animals and small animals of every kind, and let these animals produce more animals. Now, let's make humans who will be like us to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. And all these things apparently just happened. When I was a child, there, the power of this God was in God's effortlessness. God managed to create an entire universe with the words and the work of only God's breath. Notice how in the entire story of sudden bustling generation on the earth, this God needs only see, to speak, and to breathe. And all these things just happen. The God of my childhood was interested in goodness, and it comforted me to know in my nighttime stories that these stories would help me to navigate just what God meant by goodness. When I was a child, there was a comfort in the neatly wrapped package of facts that so neatly summed the creation, that even an enormous question like, where do we come from, could be tied together in a seven-day bow. A convenient deity is the main character, so no need to, hear, to fear of unexpected plot twists, a set time of one week, and accounting for everything I had known up until then. When I was a child, this was a comfort, the facts. 
A substantial amount of scholarship locates the origin of the Genesis story in the oral narrative traditions of Persia, more than five centuries before the Common Era. And I offered earlier an adaptation of the common Theravadan Buddhist myth taken from scriptures that emerged in the third century BCE, Sri Lanka. Yet for every bit of their difference in age and culture, their symbols, their messages, their warnings are strikingly similar. I call four of them to your attention this day. First, for both, the story of the beginning really isn't quite the beginning at all, is it? The Buddhist myth only begins with the present period of being. At the beginning of the story, we come upon countless human creatures already in flight. The Hebrew story begins with what God is already seeing. Still no insight is offered as to how any of these celestial beings became. From the story, we never learn where the beginning began. Second, both the stories begin by remarking on the state of light and darkness, specifically endowing the divine figure, the ideal figure, with a command over the location of light, light versus darkness. In the Genesis story, the earth is first unformed and covered in darkness. God chooses to begin the seven-day conversation with earth by commanding the appearance of life, of light. The light is in God's command, and we are to surmise that this is a good thing. For the Buddhist myth, humans in their purest form could illuminate themselves so well that there wasn't even a need for a sun. Wherever they flew, there was light because they were light. And we're to surmise that this is a good thing. Third, there is, of course, the moment. If you are already familiar with the Genesis story, you'll remember how quickly Adam and Eve's good fortunes unravel after they succumb to the temptation of the apple. Since kindergarten, I have been reading this passage the way I used to play video games with my old Nintendo. And I had an old Nintendo. I had a Nintendo, not a 64 or whatever these, <laughs> these young whippersnappers are, uh, are coming up with. I had, I had the, the NES, just the, just the Nintendo Entertainment System. I would grip the Bible like a joystick, hoping I could motivate the characters the other way this time. I want to say no! but that one. Are you bananas? See what I did there? Let's <laughs> see, bananas. It's a, it's a fruit. Yeah. But my words never seem to carry the same weight as let there be light. Eve heeds the advice of the tempting serpent, serpent again. Adam shares the apple again. And in that moment, they become aware of their own bodies and cover themselves in fig leaf and shame. In the Buddhist myth, the desire for the rice substance covering the earth is too great for one creature to ignore. And the creature dips its finger into the substance and brings it to its tongue. It's in this moment 
of taking that which is unnecessary, that consuming where the unraveling begins. Consider the concept of food as a chief motivator in both of these stories. In both of them, care is taken to specify the sweetness of the food. In the Buddhist myth, the rice substance is covered with honey. And the fruit in the Genesis story has been an apple. I've heard it told as a fig. I've heard it told as a pomegranate. But at no time has there been evidence to suggest that the story ever centered around a turnip in the garden. <laughs> it's important to see that the consumption was tempting. Neither Eve nor the first creature needed to eat. The taking of that which was sweet begat the first crime. Which brings us to number four. In both accounts, the result of consuming these foods leads to the concept of deceit. The Buddhist account says that the humans ate more and more and their bodies responded to the changes and became more detailed. Humans began to notice the differences between their bodies and other bodies. And from this notice, the concept of beauty, then attraction, then sexual relationships. Consider that the human beings in this story chastised the first couple to have sex. They pelted the couple with mud that they had created from the very earth. They responded violently to this unknown act because it was unknown. The couple built a home as a refuge in their fear of the mob who condemned them. The couple was content to stay indoors and they stored more food than they needed. Let's not mince words here. We are witnessing the first couple learn to defend itself against violence. When I was a child, these were stories for the nighttime. But when I became a teenager, the angst I felt toward the church had come to a boil. I was incensed at having devoted so much of my childhood devotion to a religious practice that would threaten to disown me for my sexuality. Much like the first couple in the Buddhist myth, the shame others heaped on me caused me to isolate myself from my own religion. During those years, I couldn't care less what the stories had to offer to me. To me, they represented nothing but a lie, right? I pursued more and more the scientific explanations of the world's origins, hoping that their empirical truth would eclipse any trace of my old stories. The book of Genesis became more the beginning of a fanciful myth that only the misguided might believe were true. But when I became a man, I began to learn how to put away my childish things. Yes, the ability to spend time with the true feelings of anger and betrayal I did feel were necessary and helpful. But if I allowed my life to remain the subject of the colony of bitterness, I would fail to acknowledge the deep sense of community and safety and comfort that same church did afford me. I would fail to acknowledge how this faith I was so wont to dismiss was also at the center of my mother's life. 
at the center of my grandmother's life, at the center and the beginning and the very end of my great-grandmother's life. I began to revisit these stories for greater wisdom than disposal. I began to see so much more in the ancient council. I began to see the themes that warn us of themselves even in the present day, reaching over eons to the beginning of this day, resonating across the generations, warning of the same pitfalls, the difference, the use of difference to rank ourselves, the disposal of fairness in favor of our consumption, the use of the earth's resources, the very mud of the earth for the mistreatment of others. These are the very same concepts that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King would call in 1967 the giant triplets wreaking havoc over the modern American fabric. He called them racism, the use of difference to rank ourselves, materialism, the disposal of fair treatment in favor of our consumption, militarism, the use of the earth's resources, the very mud of the earth for the mistreatment of others. There is a comfort we get in seeing how we are not nearly the first to wrestle here, to struggle here with the desire for things, the hardening of our hands and our hearts, the prejudice of our minds and our spirits. In a very real way, our lives are merely the latest turns, the newest revolutions in the larger course of human living. The interdependent web of life of which we are a part connects us across time to the past and the future living with all the generations before and all that remain. So we can be glad that the ancestors have left their wisdom in story, in scripture, and song, even in the silence. It's one of the reasons we keep retelling and re-singing and repeating. We don't have to learn from zero how to live in relationship with the generations and our earth. We didn't start any of this work in beloved community, and it goes on with us. And still, every weather forecast is telling us. Every Black Lives Matter demonstration is telling us. Every black, black body, every brown body in a chokehold of the police is telling us. Each one of the people behind bars for a weed charge are telling us. And every person without adequate housing is telling us in the dead of a Minneapolis winter. Every city bereft of clean water is telling us that our work is not done and the time is winding down. Every generation, the time grows shorter to matter to the things that matter to us. 
right now in this great turning. We have the opportunity to decide what we pass on, what tomorrow receives, and how much of the warnings and the wisdom are repeated as warnings and wisdom, and how much of them will be repeated as the substance of dreams realized. How much can we give our future in repeated words? And how much can we give them in societal progress? How much will, it, will we have to leave them for them to figure out themselves? Which of our squabbles are we willing to let take away from the time that we have been given to realize our revolutions? Let me ask again. Which of our squabbles are we willing to let take away from the time we've got to realize our own revolutions? What division is worth delaying the progress of a generation? And what can I have to do with that? The questions I ask that guide my day are no longer what are the facts, what was right, what was wrong, which God got it exactly right. The questions are, what am I doing to matter to my own materialism? What am I doing to matter to the tendency to harden my hands and my heart in violence that looks physical, that looks emotional, that looks verbal? What am I doing in my own life to be effective to my own prejudice? And the questions I ask myself at night now or what have I done about that? And what will I do next? I offer you a few seconds of silence in the old Hebrew tradition of Selah. Selah is uh, located in the Psalms, and I always think of it as the first mic drop that ever happened. <laughs> Selah means did you hear what they just said? You better think about that. And it's a moment to take all that has been put into the silence and to take it into our own bodies and spirits. Now, let's consider what we can do with the day that we have been given to matter to ourselves and to the world. Let us be helpful to our own revolutions. And in this work of building beloved community, let us be helpful to the revolutions of our neighbors. So may it be among us. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.
Return to the home of your soul. Return to who? Return to who you are. Return to what you are. Return to where you are. Born and reborn again. Return to who you are. Return to what you are. I invite you to breathe in and to breathe out. Notice each time you breathe that the temperature of your outbreath is warmer than the temperature of your in-breath. The warmth you seek in the world, at least in part, will come from you. Go into the world. It's your turn in this great turning to be a revolution to your own day and to be a revolution to the days of others. Make that revolution full of joy and hope and peace in your eyes, in your hands, and in the movement of your feet. So may it be. Amen. Let's sing. Thanks for listening. If you've been comforted or inspired by this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Podcasts are free to download, but they cost money to make. Visit firstuniversalistchurch.org donate to make your gift. We'd love for you to join us in person or online Sunday mornings. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.